Tom Wallace, and this is Florida Funders Angel Investing in Florida podcast. If you're not familiar with Florida Funders, we're a unique hybrid across between a venture capital firm and a crowdfunding platform. Our goal is to transform Florida from sunshine state to startup state. We like to say we're on a mission to make Florida as known for technology and innovation as it is today for tourism and strawberries. We have a really exciting show today. I'm really honored uh, to have Peter Malouk with us. Peter is the CEO of Creative Planning. Peter's really built a great company out there in Kansas City. I've known Peter for a while. He actually manages some of my personal wealth. He is up to, what, what is it, $48 billion under management, Peter? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so, so excited to have you here. He's also a best-selling author. He's, he's a rock star in the financial investing world. You've probably seen him on CNBC. So, Peter, welcome. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. Very appreciated. Good to be with you, Tom. Yeah, thanks. So Peter's a little different than most of uh, the investors I've had on, on, the, on the show in the past in that he really isn't an angel investor, but he really is so qualified as an investor. And I think during our conversation, Peter, one of the things I'd like to kind of understand is how you look at investing and some of those investing truths and some of the stuff from your book, The Five Biggest Mistakes That Investors Make, also actually are, are quite appropriate for angel investing as well. So yeah. why don't you tell us a little bit more about your background and your firm? I'm sure I just touched on it. Uh, the, the audience would like to, to know more about, about you and, and, and creative planning. So creative planning has been around for uh, a long time. And we manage about $48 billion. We've got clients in all 50 states, uh, work with over 1,000 clients in, in uh, Florida, have a very, several very strong teams there. We are known for a few things. One is customizing portfolios. We work around a lot of people that have outside investments. They own businesses, they own real estate, they're invested in alternative investments, and they're looking for people to you know, work around them, take that into account in a very tax-sensitive way. And we're also a family office. We practice law, we practice tax. We have a lot of uh, different services here from trust services all the way through that we're able to help higher net worth families with. And so it becomes a lot easier than... You know, most folks are the general contractor of their finances. They, they have their angel investment, they have their portfolio guy, they have their lawyer, they have their CPA, and we're able to really help them put all of that together, not just help them coordinate, but actually do the things for them that they need done. And lastly, a, a lot of folks like that we're an independent firm or a fiduciary. We don't have our own products. We don't make commissions on our investments. So you know, it's, it's complicated enough investing, as, as you and your, your viewers and listeners know, without having an advisor who gets paid differently depending on what you do with them. And so we're able to sit on the same side of the table with the clients and look at the full universe of, of investments and help them navigate that too. Yeah, that's great. That's one of the things I like about creative planning personally is that your transparency when it comes to fees and, and not having uh, interests outside of me, your client, and that we're completely right. aligned. So uh, how did you get into this business and what drew you to the world of investing? When I started out, I was an advisor to other advisors. So I would either do legal work or planning work for other firms. So I do financial planning for their clients. Sometimes I'm a certified financial planner. I would uh, set up wills and trusts or give tax advice on a business sale or exiting from an investment for other financial planners. So I'm an estate attorney and I would advise on that. And after doing that from 98 to 04, it took a while. Light bulb finally went off that, hey, it'd be neat to really put all of this together in an independent way, really tailor things for everybody instead of people that had just a ton of money. And that became the impetus for you know, what creative planning is, is today. And how, how you mentioned creative planning is 48 billion under management. 
How big's your firm? How many employees do you have? You, you know, be interested. So yeah, across creative and affiliates like our trust company and so on, there's about 700 employees. We have a 26, 27 offices throughout the country and clients in all 50 states now. So a lot of that's happened in the last five or 10 years. Um, it's been a, a good run. Good, good. Well, I know you have a, a unique approach to uh, investing and, and growing your clients' wealth. Tell us some of the principles of that. So the, the overriding principle is customization. So in our, in our practice, we have a small emerging wealth group that basically works with people that have under 400,000. We have a very, very large, you know, tens of billions that we manage for people that are, we call them the millionaire or multimillionaire next door. They might have a couple of million dollars and we're helping them navigate things. Then we have an ultra affluent practice, which tend to be people who sold businesses or stakes in businesses that have 10 million and up or, or even you know, much bigger numbers than that. The common thread, and it, the higher net worth, the more it matters, is customization. And I think that's what we're known for more than anything else is, hey, if you've got these three private investments and they're in this type of space and they have this sort of probability of, an out, of a certain outcome, or if you're a business owner, how do we manage your investments and your trusts and charitable planning and, and tax situation in a way where all these pieces are communicating with each other to help you get to point A, from point A to point B? That, that by far is the main thing that we're, that we're focused on. So if you have somebody who's invested in a startup, it's in the healthcare technology field, it's got you know, 10% of their assets in it, another 20% are in liquid investments. We're going to take a different approach with that individual than we would somebody else who has the exact same net worth, but a different profile. And those are very big factors as well as what state does somebody live in dictates a lot of the types of investments you have because of the way state taxes work. As people in Florida know, we know very, very well. Yeah, absolutely. And people are moving to Florida all the time because of that. Now, oh, yeah. As you, as, as you well right. know. So uh, your book is the five biggest mistakes that you see investors make. Tell us about that. What are, what's the biggest mistake you see investors making? It's, it's a tie for me between confirmation bias and overconfidence. They're both behavioral. So the book talks about five different categories. I'm giving you two from the same, same chapter on behavioral mistakes. And I think overconfidence is usually the, the initial mistake and then confirmation bias makes it worse. So people who have had success in the past tend to think that it was due to their brilliance, right? And, uh -huh. and sometimes that's the case. Yeah. But oftentimes, a lot of someone's success, including my own, there are a huge number of, of events and occurrences sure. and people that created an outcome. There was probably some luck involved, right? Too? Yeah, a huge amount of luck. People tend to discount that and say, well, this happened for me and therefore it's because of me. And they take that overconfidence into their next deal. I, I think you see this in your business. I, I see it in mine. Very rarely do you see somebody, no matter how successful they were the first time, replicate that level of success or that pattern of success. And they tend to just be overconfident. There's a lot of research in the public markets around this that when someone has a success with a stock, they're more likely to fail because they move into the next one quicker without as much research and diligence. But once people buy a position or, an, or a company, they tend to add money to it to keep it going, or they look for news they want. That's the confirmation bias element. So you know, the example I like to use is if you're a Republican, you might watch Fox News, you might go to the Drudge Report online, you might read the Wall Street Journal. If you're a Democrat, you might watch MSNBC, you might go online to the Huffington Post, and you might read the New York Times. We constantly are going and looking for things that just validate what we're saying all the time. And we tend to discount things that disagree 
with our point of view. And investors really make this mistake in a very big way. You get invested in a company, whether it's public or private, and maybe it's turning against you. What do you start looking for? You don't start looking for reasons to dump it. You start looking for reasons to reaffirm why you bought it and that it's going to come back and so on. We, te- we, we tend to go find the news that we want to reaffirm our position, which is why people wind up holding on to things too long or, and, and eventually things unwind poorly. So you combine those two behavioral mistakes. Those are the things that apply to angel investing, alternative investments, public investments, is the combination of those two and being able to recognize it in yourself and, and, and have a system in place to protect yourself against it. Well, you brought up, you know, doing due diligence, because when we look at the, the most common mistake that angel investors make, one of them is a lack of due diligence. They hear of a company, they, their friends are all doing it. You know, there's the whole FOMO thing that, you know, if they're being left yes. out. And they, so they're, they turn 25 or 30,000 or 50,000, yeah. even though they don't really know much. They don't know. Right. So due diligence is a huge, there's a lot of stats in angel investing. So if you do 20 plus hours of due diligence on every deal you invest in, your probability of returns increase significantly. And that's one of the things we do at Florida Funders for our investors, because we do well over 20, 20 hours. We do more like 80 to 100 hours of due yeah. diligence for every company that we invest in. So you, have a, you have a formal process to protect yourself against the overconfidence effect, right? Of, get, of falling into the narrative fallacy, which is where a lot of angel investors, you know, make mistakes, right? They go, yeah. to, the good store, they go to the good story and just invest there. You've got a process in place to protect against that. We like to think we do. I don't know if you can ever fully protect against it. No, no. Early stage, early stage tech investing is, you know, it's a high, high risk uh, asset class. But we try to mitigate that risk by doing, doing lots of due diligence. Right. Now, the, the uh, confirmational bias, that was, I thought that was interesting because one of the things that we look at a lot here at Florida Funders and all angel investors do is follow-ons. So once we make an investment as an angel investor as Florida Funders, you know, typically that company is going to be doing another round. And yeah. sometimes before they even get to maybe their Series A round, their next round, they run out of money, they come back to their investors and say, okay, should we do this? So I was thinking about as I was listening to you this whole, you know, because a lot of times you, you fall into that trap of, oh, I really like them. You know, maybe it's not gone as well as they thought, but I still like the idea. I still like the founders. And you do, do some of this, which I guess you call confirmational bias, right? You're looking right. at that's something that we work a lot in Florida funders because we really try to do the whole, we almost start over and say, okay, yeah. you know, where is this company now? And if we were looking at it, like we never invested it, would we write another check? That's right. And I think that's the, that's the way to handle, you know, confirmation bias. I always tell people, look at your holdings and ask yourself what could go wrong. Not what are the, what are the things that are going to make it go right? If this, if this business fails, what, what was the series of events that resulted in this business failing? And that's a great way to look at the lens. And then when it's time for a new round or a new deal, you start the whole process over to try to shed yourself of all the biases that have, that have accumulated along the way. Now, I know you're, you're not big on timing markets. I think this is something, another area where you can go from public markets and, and the kind of investments that you're involved with to angel investing. Tell us your, how you look at the timing of markets and there's definitely an overriding business cycle driven by interest rates that impacts everything, right? When interest rates are very low, it costs very little to borrow money to hire employees or start a company. It costs very little to buy a building or to remodel a building. And so low interest rates really inflate all these asset classes and create a lot of money in the system that makes everything go well. 
So you could say, well, I can tie my market timing to that because that's a, the, the biggest factor, the biggest indication of the expansion and contraction of the types of investors, investments your, your listeners are making as well as the public markets. The problem is you can't really time interest rates very well. If you look at the beginning of 2019, everybody was predicting interest rates would go up. Some crazy people were predicting they would stay flat. Well, they went down three different times. So it's very, very difficult. There's research going back where they interview the, uh, the major economists at the Fed on where they think rates will go. And they're universally wrong, you know, almost every single year. <laughs> so you can't really, it's very hard to make decisions uh, based on that. So you really, you really shouldn't. Then you have all these micro events, like whether there's going to be a, a pandemic, whether you have coronavirus or Ebola or whatever, we can go back and there's always something, sign flu, terrorist events, wars, all these other things that ma macro hedge funds try to time their way through. There's just so much research that says the economy is too dynamic to be doing any of those things. And so market timers tend to get severely punished for making you know, cash in, cash out decisions. The fully invested investor is, is going to beat the market timer over the long run with a very high probability of that ending up being the case. And it's just because you every time you make transitions, you have friction, you have money and cash, which is dead money for a while, you pay taxes on transactions and so on. The longer you can be committed to something, the more likely you are to have a, a good outcome. So uh, tell us about some of the other common mistakes you see investors making. A big one that I talk about a lot is where are you getting your advice? So the financial advisors, I'm sure your listeners get hit up all the time, just being high net worth investors, people tend to find them very quickly. And there's 350 or 1,000 plus advisors. There's a lot of advisors. And people just think advisors are like doctors or lawyers or accountants who you know, all went to school and got a professional degree, did advanced, got an advanced education, have to do all this continuing education and have a fiduciary duty under the law to act in their client's best interest. You go to the financial advisor world, none of that's the case, right? The huge majority of people giving financial advice have no education at all, formal education in delivering financial advice. They have no designations of value related to giving financial advice. And they get paid for selling their own products, or they sometimes get paid on commissions, or they're set up in a way where they don't have a fiduciary obligation to the client. That's not some of the advisors. That's about 90% of advisors. Yeah. So if you really are trying to get to good advice, you want to start with who's between me and the investments that are going to be there you really need to make sure that person is aligned with you, at least economically, right? Make sure that that yeah. person doesn't make more or less if you buy one investment over another, or if you buy their own product. Sometimes the, the, the firm's own products, they use different names, or they have revenue sharing with a third party that you know, gives them part of the, the fund. Second, make sure that your advisor has some education in the area they're giving you advice on. So uh, you wouldn't go to uh, an estate attorney that wasn't actually an attorney, you know, most many people, especially your type of listeners that are getting their taxes done are using a CPA. So demand the same, demand the same from your financial advisor, and you're probably going to find your way to investments that are more aligned to your situation doesn't mean you're going to have great success, but it means you've increased the chance of having a good outcome by, by going through that simple process of my advisor educated, and are they aligned, aligned with me economically? And do they have a fiduciary duty to me? Yeah. And, and what I like about uh, creative planning is how transparent you guys are with your fees. So there's no hidden fees. I don't have to ever worry about, uh, you know, what am I paying for and how, how what's that look like? So yeah. 
I was thinking about some of the alternative asset classes, because obviously, you know, you do asset allocation models for your clients and there's, you know, equities and bonds, Um, private equity, I I think is an alternative class you get involved in. Do you get involved in venture capital and investing in some venture capital funds? Uh, Do you do that? Do you guys do that? We don't go to venture capital. So we need private equity, private lending, private real estate, some other alternatives. Venture capital is a little further out on the risk spectrum for our typical clients. If you think about our client has had a major liquidity event or has a high concentration in some illiquid investments. So the, the people that would be qualified purchasers that would be interested in this type of area. And so for them, they're looking to us to diversify away some of the risk they're taking with everything else that they're doing. So for us to then take some of that and go put it in venture capital usually doesn't fit the profile of our typical type of client. We also invest in things. We have a general rule, not just that we're trying to make money, that the thing that we're going to buy has a very, very high probability of having a good outcome down the road. Now, that that doesn't mean that it's going to do as well as something else, but we want our losers to be winners. We want them to have not as won as much as other things. And venture capital, the risk profile of it's just completely different than where our investment philosophy lies. We have a lot of clients that made their money in venture capital or as angel investors, but they're not coming to us looking for us to fill that void for them. Well, one of the things that we talk to our uh, investors about on a frequent basis is the need for this asset class to be a small portion of their their net worth. We would never want somebody to even have 10% of their net worth of course. In, in our asset class, but to have 2 or 3% industry, industry stats are pretty, pretty uh, impressive in returns in angel investing if you do it right. But again, that's right. you know, not making those common mistakes. For us, just you might find this. So diversification, that's, I'm sure that's a big one for you too, yeah. right? So a lot, of it, a lot of angel investors come in, they do one or two deals, three deals, and they all go to zero and they say, hey, this doesn't work. We, you know, there's a lot of research on this by the American Angel Capital Association of America that says you really increase your probability of return significantly once you get to about 15 angel investments. But less yeah. than that's pretty risky. So right. that's a pretty common mistake. And I would think that's a common mistake your investors make as well. It, it is. We have all the time people bring us one deal and we tell them, look, if you're going to do this, you need to be prepared to do a dozen or we need to go get you a fund. You've got to go find a, a fund. We've got to find something that because... I think they, the typical person who gets pitched a deal or two that's an angel investment doesn't understand the risk. You know that what you said at the top of this, which is third of these, in most many cases, more than a third, maybe a third for you, but way more than a third for just a typical investor are going to go to zero. Mm-hmm. And I think most people are used to that profile of how investments work. Well, the other thing that we look at too on our side in angel investing is probably a little different from you all, but maybe not. Well, because I don't know how much you do active managed funds, but we look a lot at the jockey versus the horse. So you know, we're we're looking at the founder. We're doing a lot of due diligence on them, their backgrounds, how well they know the market, that sort of thing. Do you do you guys do that on on the on the fund management side? Are you most you're mostly passive, correct? Well, on the equity side, we're largely passive. On the alternative side, we're very active. So we are very focused on who the managers are and where what their history is. So if we're looking at a private equity fund, we do think that how that fund, that, that group has done over the last 10, 20 years, if, if we were fortunate enough to have that long history, matters. And who is managing those funds matters. If, if you look at a, a private investment, the number one thing we would look at for a client when they're evaluating that is who are the people running it? And how long have they been doing this? And what were their past results? I mean, that's 
the number one factor by far. Then you get to, is there enough money? Is this idea going to work? All of those things. Some of the research of venture capital and angel investing is kind of interesting. And in, in, uh, some of the latest research that uh, we've been seeing, and the one that surprised me recently was that the, the backgrounds of the founders in the industry that they were building their company or starting their company. And I would have thought that there was a strong correlation between a company. We have one of our companies, Rep Scrubs, which is a healthcare, digital healthcare play. The whole team's from Stryker. So they came out of healthcare. They all have 20, 30 years in, in, in healthcare and, and working for Stryker. And that company's doing very well for us. But the, the research and getting back to this, this point was that it really isn't that tied together. They're not that correlated. So hmm. the fact that somebody has 10 years of, within that industry and are, you know, they're starting a company within that industry, easily compared to somebody who's just, you know, they're starting and they really don't know that industry, but they're going to learn it. That surprised me. I, that surprises me a little bit, but I, I would still, I would differentiate that from somebody. I would much rather have someone who started a business and sold it successfully with coming into an industry with no experience than somebody who's been in the industry forever and not built a business from scratch and then sold it. To me, that experience of really finding a demand, finding a way to meet it, getting the people together to do it, raising the money, growing and selling it, that's a very unique skill set in and of itself. And so someone who has done that at least once, hopefully more, I'm betting on that jockey way over somebody who's got 20 years of education and 20 years in an industry, but has never done that before. That is sound advice. And, and uh, you could be a good angel investor, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> the, one, the one that really surprises me in, in terms of if you look at, you know, some of the stats in the industry and, you know, what makes, you know, why certain investments are, are successful or not. And again, more recent research, there was always, especially in Silicon Valley, there was always this theory that, if you're a serial entrepreneur, if you've done deals before, even if they failed, in fact, they almost feel like failure is a badge out there. And your yeah. chances of probability of success are greater because you, it's not your first rodeo. Right. And actually, some statistics have been coming out on that saying that's not really true. <laughs> but you were saying if somebody's had successful exits and, and done yeah. it successfully in the past, that's a great indicator that they'll do it again. But yeah. if they failed, there's a fairly good chance they're going to fail again. So, yeah. I think there's a lot of ways to fail. So somebody who's failed, that doesn't prove a, a lot to me. I mean, you can do everything right and fail, but there are a lot of ways. To me, the success is a, a, the best indicator because there are so many variables that go into making this happen and to stay on the road that someone who's done that successfully, I'm far more interested in that. Whenever somebody brings me a startup deal or a private deal, I'm always looking at that first. Some of the other mistakes you see investors making on your side of the business. I think that a lot of people don't have enough of a pool that's diversified. So what we like to see is, is we tell clients, like you own a business, and we see this with our wealthiest clients. It's great you own a business. It's great you own this you know big uh, piece of land that's worth $20 million. It would be nice if you had a diversified portfolio that can meet your needs for the rest of your life. You know, If you need half a million dollars for the rest of your life, let's set aside, you know, depending on what we're going to do, 10 to $15 million in diversified, boring portfolio and just make sure that you're set no matter what happens. Then take the rest of your money and go do whatever you want to do with it. You know, you'll put 100% of it in one stock, great. You want to go do three angel deals, great. You know, we're going to advise you on these different things. But if it doesn't work, we're not going to be saying, oh, this is terrible. We've got to change your lifestyle going forward. And now your kids aren't going to get what you thought and so on. Mm -hmm. there's, there's having a lot of wealth and then, then it's what kind of wealth is it? 
being worth $10 million and you have two $4 million homes is very different than being worth $10 million and $8 million in a diversified portfolio. So to me, the way I, I, for people who have a lot of illiquid investments, my opinion on how they should look at it is create a diversified pool to make sure you're independent for the rest of your life and to meet all your needs, your home or homes, whatever. Then from there, go do what you want to do versus wind up with 10 illiquid deals and two illiquid properties and and a couple alternative investments. And if things go sideways, you can have a very permanent problem mm-hmm. that was easily avoidable. You don't have to be in the game with every dollar you have. And you can be in the game with more confidence if you've, if you've really secured generational wealth in a diversified portfolio. Good advice. One of the other mistakes we see angel investors making is, is what we call deal flow. I use my brother as an example on this one because my brother, Tim, I remember years ago, he came to me and said, Tom, he's my older brother, you know how I can't tell him anything. <laughs> he said, Tom, I'm not doing that angel investing anymore. I did three deals and then I went to zero. And that speaks to the diversification where we talked about. But I said to him, Tim, how many deals did you look at to do those three deals? He's like, well, I only looked at those three. You know, somebody brought them to me. It was a friend, right. son, yeah. blah, 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 friend of a friend. And I said, well, that's the other, one of the other common mistakes we see angel investors making. Yeah. So at Florida Funders, we look at about 50 deals to do one. So we're very selective. And, yeah. and that process of going through that increases your probability of re- returns as well. And that's, that's pretty yeah. well documented. Talking about your alternative investments, you mentioned private equity and that you go out looking for the best private equity funds. Obviously, private equity and venture capital have a lot to do with each other. And there's a lot of different definitions. And the lots can get a little bit blurry, but mostly venture capital, is, as you know, is more risky early, earlier stage. Private equity yeah. tends to be you know, much more later stage. They use debt. But in both cases right now, there's a ton of dry powder. Yes. There is so much money that's been raised, as you well know, I'm sure you know. This. Yeah. There's so much money that's been raised for yeah. private equity and so much money that's been raised for venture capital. And in fact, I think I read somewhere, maybe it was the Wall Street Journal, that the private equity market will eclipse the total public market combined market value sometime in the coming years. And, yeah, like, and, and when you look at that dry powder and what, what does that mean going forward to all investors and any thoughts you have on that? Well, I think we're seeing this issue everywhere. So I, I hear it in, in different contexts. Like to your point, you're saying there's more money chasing venture capital to private equity than ever before. There's now more private equity funds than there are publicly traded stocks, give you a sense. But also in the last couple of months, more money has flown it been moved into municipal bonds than at any time in history. There's just a huge amount of money out there. And the, the publicly traded stocks, there are less of them than ever. They're going private, they're merging, less companies are IPOing. So we're seeing the public universe contract and the private universe expand. And you're seeing businesses that have 25 million to 500 million of revenue that were originally on an IPO path, they're staying in the private world longer. Why deal with all the crap of being a publicly traded company there's so much money in the private equity space now that the multiples match and in some cases exceed the public markets. Yes. So we're, we're seeing that, that happening now more than ever. There's also more money than ever pouring into private lending. There's more money than ever pouring into real estate. There's a huge amount of liquidity and the money is chasing all these assets. And part of the equation is interest rates are very low. You plug you know, an interest rate in your mouth on buying a property or buying a business, which is how private equity works. They borrow money, go buy a business. It's easier for the numbers to work. It's easier for the multiples to be bigger with interest rates so low. And I think that is really driving uh, a lot of this combined with people's irrational fear of public markets. 
Mm-hmm. It just makes no sense that if you buy a private company, somehow it's immune from the economic cycle <laughs> that a public company is. But I think that's driving a little bit of it too. I see that with very, very sophisticated investors seem to think the private markets are safer. They're not safer. I think you can make more money in them, but you trade a lot of things for that. The risk is a little different. The, the Obviously, there's illiquidity. It's a little more expensive, a little less tax efficient. And you should outperform despite those things. But it's still correlated. It's still part of the, of the way the economy works. If we have a 2008, 2009, and the stock market goes down 53%, the venture capital fund is probably not going to go up. You know, the the fee fund's probably not going to go up. But I, th- I think all those factors together are, are driving this gold rush. One last question I have for you as we get close to wrapping things up here is kind of case for angel investing. And Andreessen Horowitz, which is a, a big VC, kind of started this whole movement that's been going on for years where the unicorn, tech unicorn companies that get over a yeah. million dollars, they're waiting so long to go public. I mean, if right. you think about it, Airbnb isn't public yet. They're going to be worth $40 billion. Uber didn't go public till they were, what, uh, $70 billion in, in, in uh, market cap. Facebook went public at $30 billion. The days of, if you bought Apple at the IPO or you bought Amazon at the IPO, I think Amazon, if you bought Amazon at the IPO, do you know what it's worth today? I don't, I don't know the percent it's up, no. I think it's 1,000 a, a thousand to 1. So, wow. I mean, the, the returns on Amazon, if you buy it and held it, but... But when they went public, they went public at you know hundred million dollar valuation or whatever it was. I, yeah. I don't know the numbers, but it, it was another. Right? It's in a trillion today, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. my question is is you know if we kind of make this case is you know it's really hard to get in on these tech unicorns and these companies to get the kind of returns you were able to get as little as a decade ago because yeah. these companies are waiting so long to go public. So therefore, you should angel invest. And do you mm-hmm. know? It, I don't know if you saw. It, you know who Mitch Kapor is? You know Mitch Kip? No. So he was the founder of Lotus One, Two, Three. He put $75,000 in Uber as an angel investor. When it IPO, do you know what it was worth? No. $375 million. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's an outlier. Obviously, right, right, that doesn't yeah. happen all the time. But, yeah. <laughs> so I was just curious in your thoughts on, on that, how long and how late these large tech unicorn companies are waiting to go public and, and how that affects investors. Well, I think the IPO market's you know not as strong, and I also think that you're not seeing these companies go public to raise money necessarily. They're going public because they've gotten so big on the private side that they have to have a liquidity event for all of these investors. Mm-hmm. So it's really different than why companies used to go public in the past. They used to go public to get a bigger valuation and to raise money and issue bonds and all of that. And now it's just oh, we've gotten so big, we've got to somehow give. You know, Uber has to somehow pay off Google Ventures and your friend and everybody else that's been sitting in it in it for forever. I think that's driving a good amount of it. Is this? There's just not the same. There's not the same reason to go public. I still think there's a huge amount of money that can be made without very high risk investments. And I think if you look at most of the folks invested in, in Uber, they were still funds, right? They were diversified funds that were invested in Uber. And to your point at the top of the podcast. They invested in a whole bunch of things that went to zero and they got a couple things in there that hit a home run. So I think if someone's going to go down that road, they really have to be, we share this view. They have to be very diversified, at least 15 different holdings and, and hope that two of them work out for them. Well, Peter, this has been great. Thank you so much for your time. Is there any last piece of advice you'd like to give our listeners as far as investing gets? Well, I think diversify, diversify, diversify. If you're an angel investor, you and I talked about that. And then outside of just there, 
have a pool of investments that no matter what happens in, in your investing world, you've got something reliable that's that's boring, but it's there for you. You know, keep, keep that always on the side. Great advice. Peter, right. thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, continued success with creative planning. I'm sure you will continue to be successful. Be Thanks, Tom. I, I appreciate you having me, Tom. Thanks. And to our listeners out there, FloridaFunders.com. If you're lo- interested in looking at investing in early stage tech companies in Florida, go out to our website. We always have companies up. We're constantly scouring the state and finding the very best companies that are either in Florida or coming to Florida. And we've got a bunch of exciting companies up right, right now. So check us out. Thanks for your time. And again, Peter, really appreciate it. Thanks, Tom.